You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world. Welcome to Autumn on the Air. Today we'll be addressing a pressing issue in the innovation landscape, the lack of equity in patent inventorship in the U.S. The disparity has given rise to an innovator-inventor gap, from the underrepresentation of women in patent inventors to the challenges faced by individuals from low-income backgrounds, I'm excited to be able to bring attention to this issue and am joined today by two expert guests. Colleen Chen is a Croak Distinguished Scholar and an expert consultant at the United States Patent and Trademark Office. She is a faculty member at Berkeley Law School, co-director of the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology, and served as a part-time senior counselor to the Department of Commerce's Office of General Counsel. Professor Chen is nationally known for her research and publications on domestic and international patent law and policy issues. Her work has been featured in various media outlets, and she has testified before Congress on patent issues. With a background in investigative journalism, strategy consulting, and law practice, Professor Chen is the founder of two research initiatives, the Paper Prisons Initiative, which uses empirical research to address the gap between eligibility and delivery of second chances, and the Diversity Pilots Initiative, which uses rigorous research to advance inclusion and innovation. Lisa Lamore Boulette is the Dean F. Johnson Professor of Law at Stanford Law School and a senior fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. Her scholarship in intellectual property and innovation law addresses both empirical and theoretical problems. With a background in physics, she explores policy issues related to patents, scientific expertise in patent examination, patenting publicly funded research, and the integration of IP with other innovation policy levers. Professor Woulette is an acclaimed teacher, co-author of a free patent law casebook, and the recipient of the law school's John Bingham Hurlbut Award for Excellence in Teaching. Her diverse expertise spans trademark law, evidentiary value of online surveys, and the impact of different standards of review in various legal areas. Welcome, Colleen and Lisa. I'm so excited to have you here on the podcast. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, well, thank you both so much for, again, being on the podcast. And we have so much to talk about today. So I want to go ahead and jump right in. Now, there's a lack of equity in patent inventorship in the U.S. that has resulted in an innovator-inventor gap. Can you share with us some of those statistics of how non-diverse invention and entrepreneurship actually is in the U.S.? Yeah, there there are really vast inequalities, um, including by gender, race, income, geography. Uh, Colleen and I both spent some time studying science and engineering before we went to law school, and that gave us some firsthand experience with this. Like when I was getting my PhD in physics, there were only two female faculty members out of 40 in the department, and female PhD students were dropping out at a higher rate than uh, men were. And you see this in the national statistics. Like I think one of the um, most cited statistics is that if um, 
women, racial minorities, and people from low-income backgrounds invented at the same rate as high-income white men, then the overall innovation rate in the U.S. would quadruple. Uh, and, and the problem isn't just with getting patents. It's also with getting funded to develop businesses based on those patents. Like in 2022, companies founded solely by women got only about 2% of total venture capital in the U.S. Now, I wanted to ask you, you know, your paper talks about an innovator-inventor gap. What does that mean exactly? So this term, as I coined it in an earlier paper, uh, simply refers to this gap between those who innovate and among those innovators who are already in the workplace who actually become inventors. So kind of going back to what Lisa said, it's the idea that people are actually already well-positioned to invent and to innovate, but for some reason, they are not making that additional step to become an inventor. Or in her case, she was talking about people who may not go all the way to become a professor, even though there might be a lot of people who are already in the program. Uh, and I thought it was really important to distill attention and focus it on this very specific part of the pipeline. Because we often hear about, you know, all the different factors that go into the gaps that we see that Lisa just mentioned. And they start really early, right? They might start in early education, in human capital formation, in the level of access to people um, who are uh, who have careers in STEM, the decisions to choose other career paths. But what I really want to focus on is what happens when people actually get to the workplace. These are folks who've already gotten past all those hurdles, who are motivated and are in positions to invent. But we know because we know more and more women are getting STEM degrees and are joining the workforce, but that the patenting numbers aren't growing as quickly. So I think we've seen anecdotally that this has been there's been growing awareness once the patent office put out its progress and potential report, its landmark report, sort of documenting that only 13 percent of patentees were women, that companies started looking at, at the ranks and realizing, well, we have actually a much higher percentage of people in the workforce, but they're not, to use Kathy Vidal's term, getting off the bench and actually becoming inventors. So I sort of took this anecdotal sort of understanding that was out there and tried to really document across companies and across different settings that there was this gap between those who were in the workforce and those who were actually inventing and getting credit for it. So uh, that's kind of the origin of the term. Um, and I think what made this collaboration with Lisa uh, what the focus of that the focus of that was really around this gap between who's actually getting credit on scientific papers and those who are getting credit on patents. And as we describe in our paper, one study of scientific research teams found that that women are 13 percent less likely to, to be named as authors on articles, but 58 percent less likely to be named on patents, even controlling for seniority and field. And we thought this was something that was worth drawing attention to. Yeah, when I read your paper, I was completely fascinated by that finding. And I think it was um, something that a lot of people probably didn't expect. And I think that leads me to ask, well, why is equitable inventor attribution important? I think it's important for a lot of reasons. Um, and, and it's worth stating at the outset that the social value of patents like, remains contested. Like It's not actually clear whether patents increase research investments, much less whether their benefits for society outweigh their costs. But they, they have clear benefits for those who receive them. And given that the U.S. has always had a patent system and is unlikely to get rid of it, I think it's important that those benefits from patents are equitably distributed. Um, so it's important because being named as an inventor on a patent has professional and economic benefits that accumulate over a career. There's empirical work showing that it increases the earnings of inventors. It makes them more invested in their work, less likely to leave their employers. Um, and it also 
has an effect not just on who we're recognizing as inventors, but also the kinds of innovations that are created. Uh, there's a really nice empirical study showing that all female inventor teams are more likely to focus on problems related to women's health than uh, inventor teams that are uh, male. So that matters in terms of the, the inventions that we end up with as a society. So I've practiced patent law for a long period of time. And one of the tricky things about patent law is determining inventors. And we all know that failure to name the correct inventors can result in a patent ultimately being invalidated. So I'm curious, do you think unconscious bias could be a factor as to why more women and underrepresented individuals are not represented on patents? And if so, why do you think this bias is more pronounced for patents rather than for papers? That's a great question. And we don't really have great ways of directly measuring unconscious bias, but there are some studies that point us to its presence in the patent process. One early paper found not only did women have lower allowance rates on their patents, but that women with more feminine names did much worse than women with less feminine names. So this finding suggests that factors other than merit are operating. We also have the study that Lisa referred to earlier that controlled for seniority level, for field, for setting, and found that there were systematically people were being left off and that it was women and people with less power. And this, I think, kind of gives us a sense that some of the social science findings around the mechanisms of unconscious bias um, are quite applicable potentially to the patent context, that the contributions of people with less power are often overlooked unrecognized and underappreciated, only to be later claimed by those with power. And while these dynamics are always at play, whether at patents or on papers, I think the patent process includes features that could be subject to more abuse. For example, inventorship is tied to the claims, and it may be possible to write someone out of a patent through claim strategy or claim amendment. And so what we see in terms of the exclusion of women and lower status innovators, we also see in the corporate uh, nonprofit partnership context. That is to say that often with when we've had these seen these studies of patent paper pairs, that in cases where a corporation might be partnering with a nonprofit, with the government or others, often the government inventor who might be on the paper is left off the patent, again, for strategic reasons. So I think the nature of the tight connection between the claims and the inventorship can also um, invite mischief. Now, you mentioned the high standard for inventorship. Can you tell us a little bit about how that standard is different than what it is for authorship? Sure. So one of the things I think Colleen and I are doing in this paper is highlighting that even if there weren't bias, then the differing standards for authorship and inventorship is a second potential explanation for why a female scientist who is on a paper might be left off the corresponding patents. So the, the rules for who gets to be a paper author are governed by scientific norms. It usually includes anyone who's made any kind of important contribution to the paper, starting with coming up with the idea, getting the research funding to all of the steps in the lab of running the experiments, doing the data analysis, uh, checking things, generating the figures. The rules for who gets to be a patent inventor are quite different. So patent law has long favored coming up with the idea over doing any of the work to implement it in practice. So under U.S. patent law, to be an inventor, you need to have contributed to that initial idea, what patent law calls the conception of the invention. And it means that lots of work that qualifies for paper authorship often doesn't legally qualify for inventorship. Uh, there's not a lot of litigation over this, but one of the prominent cases involved scientists from the NIH 
who were held to not be inventors after they had used their cell lines to determine that a new compound was effective against HIV, even though they were the lead authors on the corresponding scientific papers. So I think that really highlights like how different these standards can be. So if you have an author of a scientific paper who's left off the corresponding patents, maybe that's a sign of bias in deciding who was the inventor, but it could also just mean that she couldn't legally have been on the patent because she didn't contribute to the conception. So could you talk a little bit about um, how you were investigating these different standards with respect to inventorship and authorship? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard empirically to figure out how big a role each of these plays, as Colleen said. Um, there's some empirical work on the effect of bias in uh, attribution in the scientific workplace. For the differing legal standards, it's particularly hard because there's rarely any independent indication of what kind of contribution was made by different members of a research team. Um, so for this paper, Colleen and I provided some what we think is suggestive evidence by looking at data from the scientific paper context. So there's been a trend in um, scientific paper authorship to start providing information about what kind of contribution the different authors made to that paper, uh, often with something that's called the contributor roles taxonomy, which um, assigns the different authors, specifies this person helped with the grant funding and coming up with the idea, this person ran the experiments and did some replication and roles like that. And uh, journals are increasingly requiring this, including all of the FLOSS journals, the Public Library of Scientists, of Science Journals. So we used a data set with about uh, 30,000 of these articles and looked at the um, people who are credited with what the, this taxonomy calls conceptualization, which we think is closest to what patent law would call conception, um, and also the people credited with uh, investigation, which includes like, running experiments and things that patent law would call reduction to practice that wouldn't count as being an inventor in the patent space. And we found that women were only 38% of the authors credited with conceptualization, but 45% of the authors credited with investigation. Um, so if a similar gender disparity holds for teams working on patentable inventions, then if we're limiting patent inventorship to just the conceptualizers, then that's going to be exacerbating the gender gap. And if you, ex if you expand recognition so that all the investigators are also credited with their contribution, this is, would boost female recognition by as much as 75% and close the gender gap by 10%. So it can have a real impact. That would have a tremendous impact. And maybe it'd be helpful for listeners now if we talk a little bit about, you know, what, let's say, universities and corporations can do to help reduce some of these disparities in patenting. And I think also, what can they do to help make uh, equitable attribution in papers something more um, prolific as well? Sure. I think that the you know advantage or from the purview of a university or a corporation, they are the ones that are closest to the innovators. And so they can best understand, starting with, say, a survey or trying to understand their context, what are the factors that are prohibiting people from starting the process? And then once they're in the process, getting all the way through the patent itself. Because in most of these corporations, as other work that I'm doing now in terms of surveying has found, you know, you actually have, and I think those of your audience who practice in patent law know there's a pre-step before the application that involves getting awareness of the patenting process, 
actually participating by providing an invention disclosure and then going through what's often a competitive process to an application and then persisting from the application to the uh, invent, the invent, becoming an actual inventor. So I think there are steps that can be taken at various points in the chain. First, to try to encourage broader participation by ensuring that everybody is aware um, of the possibility of patenting and what the value of it is uh, in terms of these long-term recognition and benefits that Lisa referred to, uh, but also making it easier for people to be able to um, provide their ideas and removing barriers to um, participation at the early stage. Um, we're sort of involved at the Diversity Pilots Initiative, which I hope we can talk about a little later, uh, with trying to do a proactive outreach rather than putting the burden on the innovator to actually go through the patent process only to potentially be rejected downstream, try to go proactively and get ideas from people directly and encourage them to participate by reaching out to them rather than having them have to, um, you know, sort of raise their hand as it were. Uh, and then once conditional upon actually providing a invention disclosure, um, there can also be attrition with getting to patenting. And so encouraging those who are first time and uh, submitters to really um, give them feedback if their idea isn't successful the first time to continue persisting through the process uh, to get all the way to to be able to file for an invention and then successfully become an inventor. So I think, again, corporations, universities can do a lot to understand their context and then take deliberate steps and do so in a way where they can actually measure what is working and what's not in a way that then can benefit the whole community. So uh, do you have some thoughts on what universities and corporations can also do to help with equitable attribution on scientific papers as well? Sure. In terms of equitable attribution in general, including on patents, I would say that there are both sort of awareness, making sure that you actually are fully including everybody who deserves to be considered as an author or as an inventor. Um, and as we talk about in our paper, the idea of using potentially a checklist or a rubric to ensure really that there has been a thorough vetting of everybody who should be credited and that they're being considered is important. Um, and then I think in addition to that, I think there's another potential intervention that we talk about, allude to also in the paper, which is about recognizing people who might not become be at the, at the stage of an inventor, but still because of the high legal standard, but still might be deserving of credit in some form and giving them sort some form of credit so that they see themselves as part of the process and they can start to engage in it themselves more directly and don't feel that they're on the sidelines of it. So what do you think the USPTO can do to help reduce these disparities? And what would you like to see it do that it isn't currently doing? I mean, Kathy Vidal's really been trying to tackle this problem, but I'm sure you have some thoughts as well. Yeah, so as you say, Kathy Vidal, the current USPTO director, has made this a priority, recognizing the social importance of bringing more people into the inventor process. Um, right now, Obtaining a patent is not really a user-friendly process. I mean, as many of your listeners know, like most patent applications, the first thing you get from the patent office is a rejection or a final rejection, um, which doesn't sound very welcoming and bringing you into that process. And one study found that about half of the patent gender gap is due to women being more likely to abandon their patent applications after discouraging replies. They're less likely to persist through this process. Um, so the USPTO has already been thinking about ways to help different users understand the process so that they can uh, obtain the patent rights they're entitled to, including with a randomized trial on their pro se inventor unit. So for patent applicants who aren't represented by an attorney or, or a patent agent, um, 
the patent office created a special group of examiners with training in how to help explain to these inventors uh, what the next steps of the process were and how to revise their applications so they might be patentable. And the patent office studied this in a rigorous randomized trial and found that it completely closed the gender gap in application success rate in the areas in which women were doing the worst uh, among first-time U.S. applicants. This is just for applicants who don't have um, attorneys, which is a very small percentage, but it's a promising step to um, be able to rigorously study that and see the kind of impact it could have. Uh, patent office is also now uh, experimenting with sending applicants a welcome letter rather than just a confirmation uh, and a rejection. So when you send in your application, you don't just get a, a confirmation, yes, thanks for submitting it, and here's your rejection of your claims. It starts with welcome to the process. And perhaps that would overcome some of that uh, difference in who's persisting through the process. Uh, and just to build on what Lisa has just said, I think the key here is that the patent office is trying a lot of different things to try to broaden participation. Um, and the more they do publicly and then report the results, the more the impact, can, the greater the impact can be. One thing that I've suggested that they do as well is try to Think about encouraging companies who are trying different interventions now um, as a result of a couple different private sector initiatives like the Diversity Pledge and like the IPO Toolkit is to actually document what they've tried and to rigorously measure the outcome so that others can learn from the, their experience. Um, because, again, the patent office can control what happens once you get to the patent office. Uh, and also try to explain that the process is maybe not as, as daunting as it might first appear, but it's in the companies and in the universities that the inventors who would be inventors uh, need the encouragement. And, and again, as those different um, uh, programs are being rolled out, I think the patent office can do a lot to encourage dissemination of information and rigorous measurement, just like they did in the pro se pilot that Lisa referred to. Um, but there's a lot of credit that I think that is owed to the patent office, both from Kathy Vidal's leadership, uh, also the CI2 initiative, um, the Council for Inclusive Innovation. Uh, they're doing a lot, not only in the patent context, but also in education, really, or entrepreneurship um, that I think is uh, very laudable. And again, seeing what what the impacts are of those programs, I think, will be um, will help build on them and improve their effectiveness. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, Kathy Vidal is, like you said, Lisa, really taking the charge up on this issue. And, you know, there's been a lot of activity on it. So it's going to be interesting to watch throughout 2024. And I'm curious if the two of you have any suggestions for people like myself, a patent attorney or a patent agent, are there things that we can do to help reduce disparities, let's say, like when we're conducting inventorship assessments? Yeah, I, mean, I think one of the most important things is just to actually conduct a careful inventorship assessment when you're working on a patent application. I have spoken with a lot of patent agents and with university tech transfer directors, and my sense is that there is a lot of variation in how thorough that investigation is and to what degree the person writing the patent is mostly relying on representations of the um, primary investigator on who should be listed versus doing some investigation themselves. So if there is a corresponding scientific publication, make sure you're like looking at all the authors on that and specifically asking, what did this person contribute? And thinking about, does that rise to the level of um, conception such that they should be list, uh, listed on the patent? 
So we've been talking a lot about the standard for inventorship. What about revising that legal standard or taking some other modest steps to recognize contributors to patents? Yeah, I think it is worth thinking about revising the legal standard. I mean, that would be a big change. That would would require either a statutory change or radical change in the case law. Um, But I don't think the policy reasons for limiting it to uh, only people who contributed to conception are really that compelling. Um, so it's worth spending some more time thinking about that. But even if you don't revise the standard at all, I think there are other steps that could be taken, including the steps of making sure that bias isn't playing a role and having certain inventors being left off the patents. Um, or as Colleen mentioned earlier, recognizing people who contributed to the patent in other ways even if they're not listed as an inventor. And so this could be done at the patent office of having a separate section on the patent document or associated with the patent file that recognizes um, patent contributors who are not inventors, but who played an important role in bringing those inventions to market. And it can also be done by uh, private firms um, giving some kind of reward to the people who contributed to it, uh, whether it's a formal recognition that they um, can list on their LinkedIn page, like I am a contributor to this patent number, uh, or some kind of internal prize that helps people uh, view themselves as inventors and part of this, and perhaps then taking steps in the future that do rise to the level of uh, inventorship and give them those additional career and reputational benefits. And I think some of those suggestions are grounded in, you know, the outcome of some roundtables that Santa Clara had done um, and some reporting that said that a lot of people who weren't weren't participating in the patent process just didn't seem them see themselves as potential inventors didn't feel like the concept of inventorship was relatable or even necessarily desirable so i think understanding and encouraging people to say you already are part of this invention process and we recognize you even if you're not an inventor you were an important part of this process and um, you already are there uh, will help them encourage them to continue to um, to to make contributions and to to participate um, because they are already sort of in that in that mindset. So, Professor Chen, you've written that perhaps we need to redefine patent progress from being solely about advancing innovation to also being about advancing innovators. Talk to us a little bit more about this concept because I thought that was really intriguing. So I think the motivation for the paper that is named Redefining Progress was really about reaffirming the commitment that I think has been existent in the patent system from the very beginning, that we we are not really, um, innovators are a crucial part of getting to the innovation. And so we want to think about how we can reach them where they are, right? Starting from the very beginning of the system, our patent fees were very low. We allowed for patenting by mail. And there was a commitment to trying to reach people where they were and to deliberately think about the design of the patent system to reach innovators and to think about a system that is for innovators and by innovators uh, that are going to become inventors. Um, and so I think that this renewed kind of spirit and commitment to participation has really come to the fore in the past few years. Uh, and Kathy Vidal's um, leadership has really kind of solidified that, uh, that in order to get the best innovation, we need to have everyone at the table participating. Um, and so I think what that means, though, is that 
we might do certain things in terms of um, structurally, like I've suggested that there might be an office of outreach or a small inventor who can, you know, deliberately think about the needs of small inventors and represent them at the patent office in various proceedings. Um, we know that on the PPAC, we have diverse representation um, from different sectors of different types of inventors. And I think just this inventor and innovator focus, um, putting that in the front of the system can allow us to uh, to, to, to sort of ensure that we have um, the participation that we're seeking. As I've also documented right now, there's real extreme inequalities in the patent system with sort of uh, large corporations capturing the, the vast majority of patents. But we know that when first-time inventors invent, that there are, are great benefits for the inventor and then also for the economy in terms of entry. So paying attention to not only what is being innovated, but who is doing it, I think is really sort of the idea behind focusing on innovators and not just innovation in terms of progress. Now, I want to go back to something that you alluded to before, and that was the Diversity Pilots Initiative. So I know you created this initiative to help organizations rigorously test and evaluate diversity interventions. So tell us more about this initiative and what it seeks to achieve. Sure. So our efforts do not exist in a vacuum. There has been, as I mentioned before, the Patent Office's Progress and Potential Report, I think catalyzing awareness in the community the important contributions of the IPO uh, toolkit, looking at getting more participation in the patent system, and then more recently, the diversity pledge, which has, uh, I think, over 50 members who have committed to taking steps to try to increase diversity in inventorship. And our work, I think, complements all of that and is essentially we are a group of researchers that is interested in rigorously documenting what types of interventions are being tried to increase diversity and what their outcomes are like. We're just at the beginning of that process, but right now we um, highlight studies in a Patentlio series that we have once a month that are relevant to this topic. Um, We work with companies to try to help them think about what might we try, what are we trying to achieve, how might we know if we're successful, and we're hopeful that over time we'll be able to produce some studies that can really contribute to um, and complement what's already out there in terms of the effectiveness of these different practices. So we started with a conference at Santa Clara University where I was teaching before in 22 in the fall that was co-sponsored by the Patent Office, IPO, and many other prominent groups, including Autumn, and people talked about what they'd been trying, and we also had economists and others talk about how you can do field experiments in a rigorous way and the importance of doing so. Uh, Because a lot of times what we think might be and what we well-intentionally try to put out as interventions may actually not be effective at all. And so we want to think about being um, methodical in in how we set up the intervention and then how we actually uh, track its its outcome. Um, And this series, which uh, this uh, conference which took, took place at Santa Clara, is going to be repeated this fall at Emory University School of Law, um, co-hosted by Margot Bagley, who's another um, sort of principal in the Diversity Pilots Initiative. Um, but our idea is in that anybody is out there listening and wants to uh, talk about rigorously measuring what they're trying, we'd love to work with companies, um, with uh, with universities, anybody who's close to the patenting process, even law firms who might want to try some of the stuff we've talked about, uh, we'd be interested in, in talking to you further about that work. And I'll just add that I was really excited when Colleen invited me to join her on this <laughs> diversity pilots initiative, um, because thinking about ways to improve the evidence base for policy interventions is something I've written about for a long time. I've been interested in gender inequality and and the evidence base for 
most policy interventions related to inventor equity is really depressingly shallow. Like we don't have a lot of information about what works. So in the article we've been talking about, we talk about the potential role of bias, potential role of different standards. We have some suggestive evidence that both of these play a role, but there's not good evidence about how big a role either of these play or which interventions would be most effective at reducing that problem. So finding partners who are willing to do the really hard work of developing a rigorous intervention that generally involves some form of randomized treatment to understand what the effect is compared with some control group. Um, That's really exciting. Well, Colleen, Lisa, as the podcast comes to a close, I wanted to give you an opportunity to send a message to women, racial minorities, and other people from low-income backgrounds. What would your message be to them regarding the innovator-inventor gap? I would say there's a, a growing awareness and commitment to the importance of everybody being uh, seeing themselves as potential innovators and those who want to be participating to be able to do so. Um, and this is not only important for the individuals themselves, that there might be a real payoff, but also for the economy and for national competitiveness. So if you have an inventive idea that you think is worthy of patenting, I would say reach out to the patent office, to the many pro bono programs and clinics now that are springing up across the country. Um, and to others to try to figure out if this idea is something you want to take all the way to patenting. But even if it's not a patent, uh, know know that there are more and more resources now being devoted to um, providing support for entrepreneurship, providing support for business development, um, and uh, that the involvement of um, women, racial minorities, others in the system um, is vital to sort of the, the future and success of the country. I think Colleen's message is exactly right. And I will just add that this matters because, uh, as we mentioned earlier, the ideas that different uh, innovators with different backgrounds come up with are not always the same. So um, having (laughs) the ideas that you as an innovator um, might have, there may not be other people who are coming up with those same ideas. And so it's like worth bringing those to the public and having people be able to benefit from them. Absolutely. Well, Colleen and Lisa, thank you so much for your time today, for your expertise and for all the work that you're doing to help try and close this innovator-inventor gap. We really appreciate all that you're doing. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guests, Colleen Chen and Lisa Lamore Boulet, for joining us on the air. Your expertise, insights, and dedication to addressing the innovator-inventor gap in patent inventorship has provided our audience with valuable perspectives and actionable ideas. Thank you for being a part of this important dialogue. If you're interested in diving further in this topic, you can find the full paper in this episode's show notes. Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM or visit us online at AUTM.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us.